Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is April 20th, 2018. Joining me is the editor-in-chief of the Weekly Standard, Stephen Hayes, and Jonathan Last of the Weekly Standard. Thanks for joining me on this Friday. I'm I'm, uh, broadcasting from the frozen tundra, and you are deep in the Washington swamp, gentlemen. (laughs) At least it's getting a little bit warmer here, but... Not not to the not warm Washington D.C. spring. That's for sure. No 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 sympathy here. All right, let's uh, let's uh, talk about the Comey memo released last night. Uh, this was something that uh, congressional Republicans had been pushing for. I guess I'm a little unclear what fallout they were expecting from this because, and you guys just feel free to disagree with me. They don't appear to help Trump's case that much, and they don't appear to hurt. Uh, Jim Comey that much. So Stephen Hayes, your your take on the fallout from these Comey memos? Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure it's it's clear um, that it helps or hurts one side or the other um, a ton, but I do think that that um, Comey does some damage to himself here. On the one hand, you'll hear Comey supporters say. Look, what he is saying today and what he said in his book, what he's saying in interviews is consistent with what he said um, when he wrote the memos. And therefore, that enhances his credibility. And I suppose if you want to say, you know, at least he's not uh, making new stuff up or adding things, that's a legitimate point to make. Of course, he had the memos, so he could use the memos to write the book and to to talk right. about these uh, things yeah. on television. I don't find that terribly compelling. And there are several ways in which I think he did do damage to to his overall credibility. I mean, you know, in in these memos, he opens the first memo by saying he's not sure what classification the memos should be. And he says, I'll just I'll just mark them as secret for now. Um, And then he leaks them to a newspaper uh, or at least parts of them to a newspaper. He later gives Reince Priebus, uh, then White House chief of staff assurances that these are, quote, private conversations. And then shares them with uh, at least a handful of people in at the FBI, suggesting that they're not, in fact, private conversations. And then he goes on at some length in another one of the conversations to talk about how it is um, abhorrent and probably illegal to leak conversations with the president of the United States, as happened uh, when Trump spoke to the uh, Mexican leader. And then, of course, Comey goes and does this. Now, Look, as somebody who thinks that that there is a a reason for the Mueller investigation and a justification for it and a lot of unanswered questions, um, on the one hand, I like to see more of this stuff. I think we should see more of these kind of uh, primary source documents out so that people can make their own decisions. On the other, if if Comey's going to make those criticisms of others um, and and, – become sort of a, a partisan hard charger on this, he, he'd better make sure that he's not contradicting himself all over the place. And I think that's what he's done here. Well, we're also saying that uh, Trump was obviously preoccupied with this uh, with this dossier, which you can sort of imagine, that uh, apparently at some point uh, Comey thought that the dossier's allegations were uh, corroborated. And of course, as you, as you mentioned, these conversations with, uh, uh, with, with, with Reince Priebus, I guess the question. Let me just step back for for a, for a moment. There there seems to be developing um, this narrative, uh, particularly among congressional Republicans, about the need to criminally prosecute a lot of the folks that have been openly critical of of, of Donald Trump. I guess there's something a little creepy about that, isn't there, Jonathan? 
Yeah, there there is something creepy about that. I think we we had some of that from the other side over Obama, didn't we? Yeah, yeah back then. I, I, can I just pick pick a, a, sure. a small nit with with Steve though? I don't think there are any Comey supporters. I mean, there is nobody in Washington that I've come up against who actually likes him or actually respects him. He has situational supporters where he is useful. And what's amazing about him is that this keeps flipping. So like during the campaign, uh, Republicans were fully gung-ho on Comey because right. he was useful to them in his hurting of Hillary Clinton. After the campaign, Democrats hated Comey because then it was really clear that if you believe the Nate Silver poll analysis of this, that the one thing that really hurt her in the last three or four weeks of the campaign was was his statement. And then everything flipped again. Then it was, you know, then it was Republicans who hated him and Democrats who adopted right. him. Right. Uh, I don't think there is anybody who has a clear-eyed view of Comey in which they like the guy. He is, which is fine though, because he likes himself enough to make up for all of it. Right. Um, and I was thinking of I was thinking of people like Ben Wittes at the Lawfare blog, who's written a lot and defended Comey on, yeah. on a number of different accounts. And he's and and there's a there's a small group that is sort of saying those same things about Comey. But I agree with you. He doesn't have any real constituency because he's in some ways either acted in bad faith or um, violated rules that he set up for himself, cutting in both directions. Yeah, in, in both. And he is, I mean, Jim Jim Comey is the swamp, right? I mean, this is in, in both the good way and the bad. I'm actually soft on the swamp. Um, I, I think that actually, you you know, the, the the country doesn't get run without the swamp to a large degree. You need people who understand. It's a, it's a giant machine, the federal government, right, let, and you me, need people who understand how to, squish, how to work the, it. The Comey squish here. And, and you know, I, I don't disagree with, with what you said about uh, his uh, his sanctimoniousness. On, on the other hand, I, I do think you can make a distinction between someone who, you know, had, had, had good intentions, a man of fundamental integrity, who was nevertheless deeply flawed and made mistakes, made errors in judgment. And, you know, as I read through this, there's clearly some errors in judgment and some contradictions. On the other hand, there's no question in this duel of credibility between Donald Trump and Jim Comey. I'm going to believe Jim Comey. I do think that he is far more credible. I, I also think that he makes some you know, some fundamental points about, and, and this is where we're going, we're going to have a debate about the rule of law, whether or not somebody is uh, above the law, whether or not our Constitution actually has the appropriate checks on the, on the President of the United States. So I do think that there are some, some fundamental uh, points that he's making that are valuable, but, uh, but, you, but you're right, he's, he's finding a way to antagonize pretty much everybody. Okay, we have a lot of other things. Going Wait, on can I make news. one yes, final yes, point well, before sure. before Absolutely. we move on? Just just to, to push back a little bit on that. In language that you and I will both appreciate, Charlie, I would just submit to you that it's not a binary choice, right? You don't right. have to believe either Comey <laughs> exactly. or Trump. Oh. I, th I think Comey has, if, if you look, for instance, at the Loretta Lynch um, description that he's given in his book, um, she comes to him and says that she he is to use the word investigation, not use the word investigation, instead call it a matter. That is pretty plainly, in my view, trying to thumb the scales at a time when that was very, very important to the Clinton administration that this not be called an investigation. And Comey in the book says that he was a little uncomfortable with this and maybe he should have pushed back, but he chose not to push back. Think about that for a moment. Here you have the Attorney General of the United States of America, you know, having the FBI director having made a decision to go public and talk about this investigation because it was being much discussed in, in the public domain at the time, 
telling him basically to give misleading information. And this, this you know, tall man of integrity didn't have enough spine to stand up and say, absolutely not. This is an investigation. I'm not going to do your spinning or the Clinton campaign spinning and call it a matter because you want me to. And yet that's precisely what he went out and did. And then you look at then you look at the way that he's handled all of the Trump stuff from the beginning. There is a, a sort of sense that he knew this was all going public. He was going to stand up. He was going to fight. And he was going to make this a big deal. Now, look, I happen to agree with him on the merits on some of this stuff to the extent that you can believe what he's saying. I, I, I share his concern about Donald Trump's uh, debasing of the office, his frequent lying, all of that stuff. I get it. But if if the job as FBI director is to make determinations based on facts and evidence and not allow any of these other factors, it seems clear to me that Comey fails if you judge him on that standard. Well, I agree with you that it's not a binary choice, and that's that's an important point. To, 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 <laughs> I just to had to put that in. <laughs> on the other hand, you know, as I'm listening to this, though, what what are the standards? You know, we're we're, we're talking about holding Jim Comey to the standard that I think that he you know wants us to hold him to. On the other hand, we're living in a world of of Michael Cohen. We're living in a, in a world of Donald Trump. We're living in a world with, where these these guys have no respect for the norms, no respect for the truth. There's, a, by the way, a hilarious story in the Washington Post with the tapes when when Donald Trump was trying to get on the Forbes list and he's basically lying about his net worth and he's pretending to be John Barron. So I guess the, the, the question is, you know, in 2018, you know, w- what standards do we hold people to? Because you're right, it's not a binary choice, but are we in a position where we're essentially going to say that that Jim Comey and anyone else, um, you know, in in law enforcement that that might take a stand against uh, Donald Trump needs to be held to the abs- absolute standards of rectitude when neither Donald Trump or the people around him have the slightest concern for those standards? Yes. My answer is yes. Okay. The, the whole point is you can't if you believe, as you do, as I do, that Donald Trump and Michael Cohen and, and others are um, abandoning standards or refusing even to recognize certain standards and norms. The absolute worst thing you can do is abandon them yourselves. I mean, that's the entire I mean, that's the entire point, I think, is is if you then have everybody else taking shortcuts because the, the president's taking shortcuts and it's, you know, the the it's a constant uh, ends justify the means calculation. Then we really are screwed. I mean, then you yeah. th- then all there, of the talk no about rule of law and, and um, you know, and the, the keeping of the republic. I mean, then that stuff really is serious, I think. OK, Rudy Giuliani joining the team. The um, the president's had some hard uh, has had some difficulty getting lawyers. And now Rudy Giuliani is joining the team. And by the way, my favorite part of this, the, the best part of Rudy Giuliani joining the team, and I don't know whether you've seen this, Jonathan, there is a video that just has not received enough attention. Have you seen the video? Where Which one? Rudy Giuliani is in drag. He's, oh, yeah. He's dressed up as, <laughs> as, as a woman, and he's interacting with, with, with Donald Trump, who apparently, you know, then becomes fresh with the, the femaleized Rudy Giuliani. who then Just grabs him by the whatever? Him. <laughs> yeah, so um, 2018, uh, gentlemen. Um, let's talk about Mike Pompeo because we're, we're at a really odd moment where you have major diplomatic initiatives 
And it appears as if Democrats in the Senate are planning a rather audacious effort to block the president's choice for secretary of state. And I know you've talked a lot about uh, this, uh, Stephen. So, so talk to me about where we're at on the Pompeo nomination and whether there's a possibility it might not go through. I think there's a possibility. I don't think it's a great possibility. I think he's more than likely to to um, be confirmed. Heidi Heitkamp, uh, a Democrat, uh, a red state Democrat, announced yesterday, Thursday, that she would be voting in favor of him. But I think once you've got a Democrat, it's more than likely that you'll have a Joe Manchin, uh, maybe a Joe Donnelly from Indiana, also support um, Pompeo. But what's taken place at the committee level and behind the scenes, I think, is is truly appalling. And we've got an editorial in uh, this next week's Weekly Standard uh, pointing out some of these things. You know, the, as, as an institution, we've made the argument that Republicans have too often in the past 16 months put party before country. Well, that's what's happening here with Democrats. And it is, I think, really disgraceful. You have Bob Menendez, who's the ranking member, the ranking Democrat on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and the person who's supposed to really be a, a thought leader on the Democratic side on issues of foreign policy and national security. And he submitted... Uh, to Mike Pompeo's team, 698 questions for the record that Pompeo and his team are to answer in writing. Should have gone for a round number like 700. Yeah, why, I why mean, th- this is... 98. Exactly. This is so ridiculous. Nobody, nobody who's familiar with the process believes that Bob Menendez really wants answers to all of those. What he's trying to do is compel answers from Pompeo and his team to grind the process to a halt. And that is, I mean, Democrats have complained for 16 months that the president's not nominating enough people, that the people he's not, that he, the people he is nominating aren't high quality people, what have you. Here you've got Mike Pompeo, who went into the CIA, uh, took an agency that was, I think, that is sort of bureaucratically uh, antagonistic to Republicans and conservatives generally, despite um, its reputation. He goes in as an elected official, which makes him suspect. He goes in as a Republican, which makes him suspect. And he goes in at a time when the president, his boss, is beating the crap out of the CIA and the intelligence community on a daily basis. And Pompeo goes in, and within months has won over the bureaucracy. Uh, he has done this in a number of ways, uh, in particular by picking Gina Haspel to be his number two, who had been sort of thought to be a political lightning rod, and Pompeo's choice of her said to the workforce, hey, I've got your back in a way that my predecessor didn't. So he, he goes in and he wins over a hostile bureaucracy. He makes himself an indispensable advisor to the president of the United States, changing his views or shaping the president's views on crucial issues such as Afghanistan, uh, the Iran deal, which Pompeo was looking to fix before abandoning it, on North Korea, what have you. He's a West graduated first in his class from West Point, went to Harvard Law, built a successful business, three terms, highly respected congressman. And Democrats are saying he's not qualified to be secretary of state. I find this absolutely outrageous and it is uh, it is a, a welcome or an unwelcome reminder of just how poisonous and partisan Democrats have been regardless of Donald Trump. This is the way Democrats have conducted themselves for a long time. So, it's so an important why, reminder. Why have they, yeah, so why have they chosen this hill to 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 die on? I think in part it's it's a tactical choice so that they can try to knock Pompeo 
and uh, make Gina Haspel unconfirmable. I also think it's just reflexive anti if, if Trump wants this guy, we, we oppose him. I mean, that's the way Democrats think. But just, just to put into context just how ahistorical this is, Hillary Clinton was confirmed 94 to 2 in a vote that included dozens of Republicans who yeah. no doubt had huge ideological problems with her at the beginning of the Obama administration and also had raised, I think, compelling and it turns out prescient questions about conflicts of interest with the Clinton administ- with the Clinton Foundation. And yet Republicans voted because there was a sense that presidents get to pick their top advisors. The same thing happened with John Kerry, who was yeah. who was voted in ninety four to three. So this is ahistorical and I think pretty pretty damn outrageous. Okay, we we have a few more minutes here. I wanted to get uh, Jonathan a chance to uh, to uh, to do his his periodic rant about the the kids. Today is the National Walkout Day. I don't know if it's got a name, but once again we have which one for is this gun control or pot? Well, I want to get to pot in a moment. Okay, because because those are those are my two favorite issues today. The 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 school walkout. I am getting the sense though that 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 despite the self celebration that. That really the momentum has kind of gone out of this uh, children's crusade on gun control. What is your sense? No, no way, man. The book is coming out Tuesday, right? This is we, we were just talking about this at a at our editorial meeting. The 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 David Hogg Hogue Hogg, which Hogg. is it, Charlie Hogg book? Where which isn't the title of it or just the hashtag for it is never again. They're they're mm. literally aping the Holocaust. As it, now look, I think you know, school shootings are bad. I, again, I'm a squish on guns. Yada yada yada. Mm. Uh, but it isn't the Shoah. <laughs> I mean, no. the, the inability to draw proportionality here is shocking, and maybe maybe it's just historical ignorance. I don't I don't know. Um, somebody on staff here was just pointing out that there there was a recent survey of millennial types where the mm-hmm. understanding of what the Holocaust was was at a level which was alarming, which surprises me a little bit, but then also doesn't surprise me because I the number of people I know under 25 who understand anything about the Cold War is going to be like 10% or something like that. I mean, Anything about history. Yeah. yeah, and I mean like really yeah. recent history in ways that I find stunning and shocking and, and a little bit worrisome. Uh, so I guess I'm not... I'm not willing to concede the the children's crusade is over yet. I think it'll be interesting to see if anybody bothers to push back against the the next phase of this. Yeah, I'm just I say I'm just biting my tongue on this on the David Hogg thing. I mean, you, we, we've talked about this before, and you know, I I don't want to be that guy um, who you know talks about the kids. On on the other hand, boy, you know, there's got to be some adult somewhere who has got got to tell him, you know, um, buddy, uh, you you have some moral authority, but. But the constant, you know, who are we going to attack this week? I mean, when he called for the boycott of Vanguard investments because of their ties to guns, I mean, I mean, uh, okay. speaking of pot, though. So Chuck Schumer officially is coming out in favor, the Democratic uh, leader coming out in favor of the legal federal legalization of marijuana. What do we make of that? I mean, this is this is this is where everybody is heading. I think the Republican Party is heading in this direction. And uh, this shows the debasement of modern politics, because we actually now find I mean, I think I've always been against pot legalization for a whole bunch of reasons. But I, I think that there was at one point an open question of, well, maybe if you decriminalized it, then maybe it actually solves a bunch of problems. And now that we've experimented with it, we actually see that it doesn't. 
it creates a whole host of new problems and doesn't really solve any of the old problems, and it makes things much worse. Colorado's experience with pot legalization has been really, really bad in a whole bunch of measurable ways. And and so, of course, now that we have empirical data on this, the cultural consensus is going the other way. But what's happened in Colorado, This it's it's, it's fascinating time to, to talk about this on 420. We've actually got a uh, one of our writers out in Colorado as we speak, Tony Messia, doing a long look at what the experiment was in Colorado, what happened. And what's so interesting to me and I think frustrating, and I say this as somebody who was uh, pretty squishy on it, I think it was worth experimenting with uh, legalization or at least decriminalization, if for no other reason than, than the reason that libertarians cite that this has been a failure. The drug war has been a failure. And if we can't agree on anything, we can agree on that, I think. Um, but the the the, the bet or the... the um, agreement, the tacit agreement that was made when Colorado favored legalization, you heard certain politicians uh, articulate this directly, was, look, this is an experiment. We know it's an experiment. Laboratories of democracies, federalism, the whole thing. We'll revisit this and see what's happened. Nobody wants to revisit it. Colorado officials don't want to revisit it. Uh, I mean, the people who were opposed remain opposed. The people who were for are finding reasons to be for, some of them enthusiastically uh, for it. It's hard to dial back once you've legalized something like this. It is, and and I think Jonathan's exactly right. If you look at what we can gauge in terms of outcomes— this has not been what uh, was promised from the outset. I mean, you know, remember this was legalization was to kill the black markets and and uh, send the cartels scurrying, and in fact, it's done precisely the opposite. It has dramatically uh, increased the presence of cartels. It has expanded the black market. You have uh, things like grow houses now in residential neighborhoods where people go in and strip out all the furniture and do nothing but grow pot in their houses uh, and disrupting neighborhoods, uh, you know, certainly having uh, more young people experimenting with pot and not the old school kind of pot that, um, you know, folks might have experimented with in college. Some of this stuff is synthetic, which can be addictive. I mean, there are, there are like a hundred different things that you have to look at when you reevaluate this if you entered into this experiment in good faith. But, and but, virtually but, but, nobody yeah. wants to do it. Yeah, but the momentum seems to be headed in this direction. I mean, you have you know, even John Boehner, former speaker, who has signed up for this. William F. Buckley Jr. was an early proponent of the legalization of, of marijuana. So this is clearly going to split the conservative movement from, you know, the more, you know, with no, the No, I don't think it's going to split the conservative movement. I think so conservatives are just going to capitulate. The gentleman saying that if you were in Denver today on, on, on 420, that you would not be either lighting up or going and getting a brownie? Is that what you're saying? I would not. I've never touched, I'm like the last guy in America who's never touched drugs. I'm sorry. Like I did. And I've never, you know why? I actually wrote a casual first about this once because I believed when I was a kid and this stuff was like something cool. I thought to myself, my God, if I got caught, it would go on my permanent record. And then I won't get into a good college and I'll never have a good job. And and by the time I understood there was no permanent record, I was past the time when drugs were there interesting. Is, there is a permanent record. It, it's online. And <laughs> that you probably weren't going to end up with a good job anyway. Yeah, I mean, well, that's did, did, you guys, did you guys ever read the column by Ma, by Maureen Dowd when she went? Oh, uh, God, and, yes. And it was, it was, it was one, of, one of the classics where she buys this, the marijuana brownie. And apparently no one tells her you eat one eighth of it. You don't eat the whole thing. She eats the whole brownie. And she's thinking, hey, there's nothing, no effect here. I'm going to have another glass of Chardonnay, and boom, it hits her. 
Um, so best then, column she's and, ever written. And then did she write right <laughs> in that state? I don't believe so. I'm not saying that she's never written in that state, but it's 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 a cautionary tale for uh, shall we say inexperienced users. Uh, see, I I grew up a little bit earlier than you, Jonathan, um, back in the early '70s, where you know. In fact, my high school was Nicolay High School in Glendale, Wisconsin, was known as America's Grassland, and uh, <laughs> I, I don't, I, I don't uh. think there was a lot of anxiety about the permanent record in, in terms of that. And it was a different but, time. It was a very, very, very different time, gentlemen. Thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it very much, and thank you for listening to the Daily Standard podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back on Monday.